The Soul of an Internet Machine, a podcast journaling the adventures of a business and a software development team figuring their way through the challenges of launching a new venture. We make the occasional good decision, spend time following bad ones, and get trapped by world events. Ping me, Christina Moore, on Twitter at Seymour underbar SP. That's Charlie Mike, C-M-O-O-R-E underbar SP, or at the website, ChristinaMoore.us. Chapter 9 first minute. With our internet machine, more goes on in the first minute than any other minute. The user does not experience this, well, except for that resultant flurry of emails. A web-based application, also called software as a service, relies on external services and runs more lines of code during the first seconds as the user's payment is processed and the user's services get built. In chapter 2, I defined the cloud as the mathematical center of the internet. This definition, while not right, is also not wrong. The importance of the definition stems from the amount of time it takes to communicate with a vendor or a partner or a service provider here at the center of the internet. The data exchanges ought to be blindingly fast and achieve a high degree of reliability. In the old days of computing, even a decade ago, Software developers did not trust that a partner would respond with data fast enough nor consistently enough. Therefore, we architected redundancies and measures to protect our own operations from their slowness and their failures. We've moved forward. The more modern techniques approximates the definition of an internet machine. Modern web-based software has been constructed within the fabric of the internet. In Chapter 3, I explored software especially software as a service, as a tool chest of the modern economy. I tried to break barriers between software, engines, and machine. They're basically stuff that does stuff. In the case of PodcastFlow, it is a suite of software that operates together. PodcastFlow, the application, aids podcasters with the planning, promotion, production, and profiting from podcasts. We also offer courses through our learning management system. Podcast plan on a weekend infinite interviews, guests to grow. I've been stepping through challenges we faced with collecting subscription fees, collecting sales tax, and establishing a unified and secure means of granting users access to our machine, the suite of software. I've ranted about the United States Supreme Court decision called South Dakota v. Wayfair, Inc., which resulted in every internet business who is based in the United States and sells to customers in the United States to collect sales tax for the thousands of tiny sales tax jurisdictions. Step by step, I demonstrated the building blocks of a very complex process. And I've discussed a lovely failure we had with PayPal, a complete waste of time and money. The first minute of interaction with our machine resembles actions needed for nearly every internet machine, from Netflix and Hulu to your favorite dating app or whatever other subscription-type software you imbibe. The first minute must meet objectives for three entirely separate audiences. In short, there are three bosses involved simultaneously. The first boss, of course, are the technical people. The other first boss are the marketing people. And the other other boss is the user, the consumer. Each of these three bosses expect different behavior, different actions, and must be served equally. I do put the technical teams ahead of the others only because nothing works if the tech fails. I also put the technical team's needs first because it is my perspective. 
I think in terms of building blocks, software design and development resembles a physical architectural process in my mind. I often try to use Lego as an illustration, but I admit that doesn't work very well. The classic Lego block, say the old 2x4, has smooth edges. From the outside, it appears its job is to hold up the block or the blocks above. Yet, with colors and blocks of many shapes, amazing structures appear. Even machines that whir and move. It takes blocks and each block must be in its place and well supported to be structurally sound. In my programmer's mind, that humble block can be substituted for something else. It does not have to be a block of six sides and smooth edges. It can be its own tiny machine, doing its own tiny machine things. Remember my definition of a machine? A thing that does stuff to something. Maybe you think of a black box or a magic box or even one of those smart speakers in your house or your mobile phone. Maybe you can think of the computer on the original Star Trek TV show. Spock asks, Compute to the last digit the value of pi. Computer, this is a Class A compulsory directive. Compute to the last digit the value of pi. That's not a great example as the computer does not actually return a value. Software architecture depends on discrete building blocks that each does their own thing, yet forms a solid structure. Recurly, introduced in Chapter 6, is such a building block. It does all sorts of black box or magic box things. We don't have to build it. We only have to know how it behaves. We need to know how to talk to it and how to listen to it. It connects to our system. It shares data with our system. What do we need during this first minute? I require about one minute to read this list. One, accept the payment for a new subscription. Two, create or update the customer information. Three, create or update user information. Four, update the security profile, who has access to what products and for how long. Five, set the user up at Okta. Six, assign the user to one or more Okta groups, granting them access to the learning management system or podcast flow, the podcast management system. Seven, update email lists with information about what someone bought and when. Eight, get user credentials to be emailed to the user. Nine, get a receipt emailed to the user. Ten, get a welcome email sent to the user. Eleven, and whether they bought just a course or the full suite, we set up their first podcast show in Podcast Flow. Twelve, calculate their sales tax, if applicable. Thirteen, track their sales tax information with previously unmentioned vendor Avalara. This vendor's tool is bolted onto the side of Recurly. Fourteen, Get the customer data sent to the email marketing tool and associated with the product they bought. Done. The new users will get at least three emails from us. Recurly will send a receipt. Okta will send in login instructions. And Podcast Flow sends a welcome email. Our staff gets a few emails too. We get a buy alert. We get an email from various points in the credit card transaction process. Recurly processes the subscription that gets handed to another service who processes the payment on behalf of our bank. And at the end of the business day, we get a daily reconciliation of transactions. The next day, the values appear in the bank account as payments. It sounds like a lot, and there is a lot of complexity. If your experience is that of a user buying something online, 
this may be your first look at behind the scenes. If you're a programmer listening to me, many of these steps will be familiar. Let's start with Recurly. We have a website hosted by Recurly. The Recurly logo is visible on the low right corner of the screen. In the URL at the top of the page, one would observe an icon of a lock that is snapped shut. Locked. The locked icon informs us that the link between the user and Recurly, the host, is encrypted with certificates conferring trust. In that address, it includes Recurly.com. On this page is our product or products and descriptions. We like having their name on this page. It clearly informs the user that Podcast Flow is not collecting payment data. By hosting in conjunction with Recurly, we reduce risk because we are not storing critical and confidential financial data, no credit card numbers, etc. They manage coupons and discounts and renewals and all of that. They possess the required expertise with these skills. The customer arrived at this page from a sales process that expounded with great enthusiasm on the value of our product or service. The customer clicked through to our buy page, which closely resembles a checkout page for a lot of online marketplaces, and added value to us. People trust the familiar. At the conclusion of the purchase, Recurly has all of the data that the other systems need and all three bosses want tech folks, marketing folks, and the buyer, the consumer. Recurly sends a polite email to the buyer as a receipt of the purchase. In fact, we have switches to configure what email Recurly sends on our behalf. We ask them to email the consumer with new subscription, change in the subscription, an invoice, and or payment confirmation. We prefer this confirmation coming from them as a means of enforcing trust. Our logo, and our name are also present. We inform customers and the world that we are not collecting confidential financial data. Buried within the Recurly process is also a sales tax calculation. A firm called Avalara looks at the type of product, and in our case, software as a service or subscription software, same thing. They need to know if this service or product is taxable in the user's jurisdiction. I think they use the postal code provided by the user. If the purchase is taxable, the amount of the tax must be displayed to the user before she or he checks out. That is an important disclosure. The systems we manage at Podcast Flow do not need to directly interface with Avalara. They've done their job when they calculated and tracked the sales tax. Thank you, Avalara. So far, we have not paid any sales tax to anyone, and yet... It costs us a fair amount of money. Oh, well, cost of doing business on the right side of the law, I guess. How do these data move from Recurly to Podcast Flow? The building blocks of software only work if they can process and move data along. Snapping a pair of Lego together seems intuitive and obvious. Snapping Recurly into Podcast Flow? Not so obvious. First question. Does Recurly send the data to Podcast Flow or does Podcast Flow go fetch the data from Recurly? Both are possible. Which is best? Only Recurly knows that there is a new subscriber. Therefore, it makes sense that Recurly shout out to Podcast, hey, I have a new customer. Then they toss the data at us. This is called a webhook. 
we configure Recurly providing it with credentials and a destination address, which is exactly a website address, same as a URL. Recurly burps data at us with any change. We capture all of it and store it. Someday, we may even figure out if we want it all. Just to be polite, and for all sorts of technical reasons, we catch it and store it all. New subscription, new customer, new invoice, new payment, new transaction, all of it. We decided to respond only to a specific type of data. When you peel back the layers on these data packets, they tend to be similar. We picked out one that is most representational of the activity we care about. Therefore, we opted for a paid invoice. If we see or hear paid invoice data set coming in, we pay more attention. All of the others get tossed into a figurative place called the bit bin or trash can or dustbin. Oh sure, we keep it and ignore it both. We unfold the lovely data set with the paid invoice. These data are in JSON a slightly more modern format than what I learned in the 1980s, the old comma separated value or CSV. JSON is a damned cool system for communicating data. It is an open and public standard. It is human readable and completely agnostic about the context, you know, the computer language, computer type, none of that matter. A verbal description will do little good, but the page in Wikipedia and the example that's there is worth looking at. JSON spelt J-S-O-N, or JavaScript Object Notation. I have clients all through my career who knew and played with the data that they pulled from spreadsheets. Importing a comma-separated list into a spreadsheet is done easily. For database folks, you can grow to hate the old comma-separated list. Here, with the CSV, is a pile of neat data that works oh-so-occasionally. For its decades, even for its ongoing popularity, it is rather fragile. A misplaced comma makes a mess. Yet in JSON, each element of data has a neat little label with it. Hey, I'm a first name, it says, or hey, I'm a postal code. The data is real and complex and readable and useful and all sorts of cool things. The paid invoice data from Recurly holds a fair amount of data, including... The invoice number. Yes, it has the customer name and address and information and about what the customer bought. All of the information one would expect on an invoice. Invoices are the same, whether digital or paper. We have two key questions. One, is this a new customer or a returning customer? Two, is this a new product subscription or a renewal? If the customer is a returning customer, we do not have to set up a new user. We do not have to set up customer information within Podcast Flow and the learning management system Maestro. Whereas if a customer is new, then yes, we have these additional steps. Similarly, if a subscription is a renewal, then we have a simple step of updating the ending or expiry date. On the other hand, if a subscription is new, then we have several additional setup steps, new permissions, new access, etc. I'm not going to endeavor to describe a flow chart in a podcast. Even printed, most people hate them. Building an internet engine requires that we have little blocks that do stuff, little sub-engines. Is that a thing? One sub-engine may be a building block that sets up a new customer. One sub-engine may be a building block that sets up a new subscription. 
One sub engine may be a building block that sets up a new user. You get the picture, right? Programming then becomes the process of asking the right questions, new or existing. If the data are new, we insert them into our Oracle database. If existing, then we do a quick check of our data and update anything that has changed. This engine we've built, that all programmers and toolsmiths have built, involve smaller elements that operate independently. We can test them separately. They each do their own little machine-like thing. If we tell a sub-engine to create a new user at Okta, it bleeps and whirs as we communicate with Okta setting up a new user. When that sub-engine is done, it gives us an ugly and long user ID number. The long user ID number is the same as saying, done. These little sub-engines operate independently. Okta does not give one single hoot if a bill was paid at Recurly, nor that the sales tax was fussed over. The Okta sub-engine does the Okta-like things. The Recurly sub-engine does Recurly things. Compartmentalization is a fair description of how these sub-engines work. Our software steps through various decision points or branches, as we call them when coding. Is this customer new? Yes or no? If yes, run the Create Customer sub-engine. If no, just get me the customer ID so I have it in my hand as I continue. We call these baby steps. Well, I do anyway. I have a lot of sayings when working with software developers and training them. When I troubleshoot my own stuff, they become a shorthand for coordinating the team too. These phrases and the related way of approaching problems becomes part of a team's culture. Let's step backwards to the very first action when Recurly sends us data about a new invoice. This triggers the 14 actions that follow. That list starts with update customer information, set up the user, send emails, etc. The very first time we play with this, we need to know that Recurly is sending data. One or two of us gather at a screen. We do this with a variety of collaboration tools. Our firm has never had a real office. Everyone worked from home. Everyone has always worked from home. We focus in on the process of having Recurly send data and we catch it. Failure is expected to the point where even if we're successful, we have doubts. It never works the first time. It rarely works the second time. And when you have it working, it should have that perfect reliability one sees with a light switch. Switch on, light on. Switch off, light off. The same coordinated response with every toggle of the switch. That reliability takes tries and failures, often deliberate failures. In time, I ask, are you walking the dog or is the dog walking you? I'm asking, who is the boss? Is the light switch actually controlling the light? Or is there another factor or set of factors in play? A developer cannot move forward to the next step until they have perfect control and perfect reliability. You can't let the data or the program walk you around. The programmer must be the boss. The programmer must control 100% of the actions. We do not like randomness in this process. This is the most difficult lesson for a rookie developer. It becomes easy to see what data looks like and how to manage that data that you do see. Additionally, you must also accommodate what you do not see and the crazy variations nobody thought of. 
know what we call these when they appear? We call them bugs. Yeah, sure, it worked great for the first 10 tries, then failed. What changed? Did the data change? Did the programming change? Oracle has an absolutely lovely trap for programmers. Oracle manages null data with precision, the sort of geeky precision few humans live with. One of the data types in Oracle is called the Boolean. The textbook will inform you that it stores the values true or false. Even according to Wikipedia, the Boolean data type has one of two possible values, usually denoted as true and false. I do wish this were true. Oracle recognizes the absence of data, also called null, as neither true nor false. Therefore, a Boolean value, a data type that is supposed to have two states, has three True, false, or null. The same thing is true for numbers and all of their data types. It takes a while to understand that zero is not null. Null is the absence of data, whereas zero is just another number on the number line. What is one minus zero? One. What is 2 minus 0? 2. What is 2 minus 2? 0. You get it, right? Here's the toughest lesson for the rookie. What is 1 minus null? Null. What is 2 minus null? Null. What is null plus 0? Null. Does 1 equal 1? Yes, true. Does 1 equal 2? No, false. Does 1 equal null? Null. Neither true nor false. You're a young programmer writing code, and it works the first 10 times perfectly. Then a number appears as a null. Does 1 equal null? Neither true nor false, but null. These little programming sub-engines fail. Life gets miserable, bosses get anxious, customers get frustrated, and we have a bug in the software. Learning to anticipate the unexpected in data is the only prevention. We have a bucket full of tools and 50 years of coding tricks to solve problems, but we can only solve problems that we see and that we anticipate. Encountering null data is just one case when things go poorly. That poor dog gets off the leash. When a programmer needs to learn the difference between walking the dog or being walked by the dog, it can be hard to tell sometimes. Sometimes, as a programmer, you break what you fix to prove you have control. You break something new to test resiliency. You have to learn to toss empty data and bad data at good code to see just how badly things will go. Baby steps isn't enough. A developer must learn to demonstrate and prove control. Remove a line of code or modify the data. See how it goes. The desire is to build structures that are both strong and accommodate weird stuff. Once you feel great about things, you call this a new baseline. You can then take one baby step forward. As you build and work, you first strive to get stuff functional. Then you strive to break it and stress it. You break, then fix, then break, then fix. Like that light switch trick. But instead of toggling just the same switch, you fuss at the different variables. 
change one wire, change the bulb, change the voltage, make one change, test, get back to working, then make another change, a different change, fix it, lather, rinse, repeat. It is fun. I've been at this since I was in grade school, preteen years, early teen years. Above, I detailed 14 steps that need to take place in the first minute. It starts with a purchase at Recurly. Within milliseconds, we look at the data we got from our partner and trigger as many as 14 new steps with several vendors or partners. Data travels to and fro, jumping between the building blocks that we wrote and external services. Building blocks that must be solid but flexible. Building blocks that form a foundation for the rest of the structure to stand on. In the olden days of the internet, developers were hesitant to share data. Complexities involved security and structuring the data and who sends and how often and how reliable and more. Of course, people shared data, which is why standards such as HTTP and JSON came to be. Even with these standards, one also needed tremendous confidence in the reliability of transmitting data. I attended meetings when at FedEx with telephone companies local to the Oakland, California airport. We were building a small data center to support international movement of air freight. We wanted a circuit from each of two providers or vendors. We wanted the data circuits to make separate physical approaches to the building, a means of protecting operations from a digger on the street. Let's make sure that one big yellow machine poking a hole in the earth does not take down both circuits. In the late 1990s, the internet did not have a center. There was no cloud as we think of it today. The data had to move from one edge or one facility to another over very real distances taking time. Now we just push to the center of the internet, to the cloud, and we work there. Absolutely, we pay fees to work there, but vendors and services are milliseconds away with near-perfect reliability. That makes creating a reliable, fast machine possible. We can execute 14 steps across multiple vendors, Recurly, Okta, Avalara, Authorize.net, TD Bank. The data are encrypted, access is controlled and monitored and regulated. The standards are open and public, but the process is secure and private. Within a minute, thousands of processes execute at the center of the internet, each taking milliseconds, each invisible to the user. The three bosses, the customer, the marketing team, and the technical team each get the information and the services that they need. The customer receives their goods or services, in our case, access to a class or access to software that helps their podcasting. The customer gets professional-looking receipts and confirmation that their financial data was treated respectfully. The marketing team gets immediate confirmation of someone buying what they bought, maybe even some clues as to why they bought and how they bought the product or service. The customer's name and email get put into our email system so that regular care and feeding email can be sent on a regular basis. We ask how it goes. We ask, are there any questions? We introduce ourselves, you know, that sort of thing. The technical team can relax. The machine works. Well, that should not be a surprise. It often is. For those of us who have watched things go horribly wrong, watching a machine bleep and whir with little attention is a lovely feeling. Nearly every senior technical person has a story involving sleeping on a conference room floor or on a computer server room floor after a tiny mistake. At that same Oakland FedEx facility, I had a young staff member type in shutdown zero space zero. 
He was showing a buddy what he had learned. The servers shut down immediately. The database is corrupted. Two vice presidents, three or four managing directors, several senior managers were all present for a major systems test that day. And I sat at a keyboard, dripping sweat down my nose. One phone linked me to Australia for support, and another phone linked me to Europe for support from another team. My boss, Beth, paced impatiently behind me. FedEx can equate seconds of delay with dollars of lost revenue. The shutdown command executed a few hours before the operational workday ruined us and delayed operations. So long ago on the calendar, yet so fresh in my memory. It was not my first horrible mess up with systems, servers, software, and operations, and it's not my last. Several times in Iraq, fiber got cut, which prevented soldiers from accessing communications, cameras, and such. Even in Puerto Rico, I have a solid memory of my business partner, John, running down a street in San Juan to save a server before it crashed. I prefer the calm and boring operations of an internet machine ticking along. This week, I got a paper bank statement. So retro, huh? For the first time, the document showed deposits generated by credit card purchases from customers buying our stuff. It is a thrill looking at daily deposits into a bank account after so much work. Yet, in the back of my head are these memories of stupid mistakes, big yellow digging machines cutting fiber, and young staff typing shutdown. The Soul of an Internet Machine is a copyrighted production of Fire Media LLC 2020, all rights reserved. You can find me at my website, christinamore.us. Email is okay too, christina at christinamore.us. Mm-hmm.